walking into a new series uh, today. So if you have a smartphone, will you pull it out and set it to airplane mode? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing. I just want you to look at it for a second because uh, it's going to be your visual illustration here as we walk into this next series. We are going into a series called Life Apps. Life apps. And the idea is there is an app for that. And I was thinking about um, how helpful apps can be. And I was thinking, you know, when apps first started coming out and becoming a thing, and we were all moving from flip phones, which some of you still have, um, our pagers, maybe some of you still have those. And uh, if so, I want to know why you're selling drugs in this community. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. But uh, you might be a doctor, you might be prescribing drugs, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, these phones started coming out and they started having these cool little buttons that were apps. And I was thinking about how cool an app is because I press a button and then I'm able to actually do something. But what if when you press that button, imagine, I don't know, what's your favorite app? Someone tell me what your favorite app is that you use. The Bible one. <laughs> Someone check and see how, how well-worn that Bible one is. Yeah. I have one called Run Oh. That's an amazing app. That is an amazing app. That was a great commercial for that app. I never heard of that. Wow. That was way more interactive than I thought you guys were going to be. That's awesome. <laughs> I like a little interaction. Come on now. Oh, that's great. So I was thinking about when apps started coming out, how, how cool they were because they actually did things. But can you imagine, let's say you're an Angry Birds person and you're over 40 probably because um, <laughs> no one's been playing Angry Birds, I don't think, for like at least 10 or 15 years. But let's say you're an Angry Birds person and uh, you clicked on the button to play Angry Birds, and instead of actually getting to play the game, what opened up was just a description of the game. And it would tell you, hey, this is a game that was uh, developed by a guy who somehow, he was standing in the shower and thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could launch birds through the sky into walls where there were pigs hiding behind there, and the theme would be that the pigs had stolen the eggs of the birds. Someone was crazy that came up with Angry Birds. I'm not sure how we got that, right? But if you read all that and were like, yes, this is awesome, and then you press the button, and all it was was the description, and you never actually got to do the thing, you wouldn't have an app. You would have a description of an app. Because an app means application, means you get to actually do something. And so in our life, this whole series is going to be tying into this idea that we have lots of information, especially coming from the Word of God, but if we don't actually get to do those things, if we don't actually participate, we haven't actually activated the app. Let me talk a little bit about how that works, because there's two sides to this. In, uh, in the first side, sometimes we know things, but we don't actually want to do those things. How many of you had a lot of rules when you were growing up? Who were that lot of rules families? Yeah, most of you ended up in church, right? That was helpful, right? How many of you had no rules growing up or very few rules? Yeah, less of you guys. It was a longer road for you to get here, right? <laughs> I was in that group that didn't have a lot of rules, but I had one primary rule that was like the one rule to rule them all. Right? All of my other rules kind of fell under this rule. Now, I was a pretty good kid. If I was wild, more rules would have come into play, I'm sure. But I had one primary rule, and that rule was this. 
after school, no matter what, I had to come straight home. From home, I could launch into any direction. I was free to launch into any direction, but I had to come straight home after school. That was like my primary rule. Now, I grew up when kids could still play, so you could jump on your bike and ride all over town. You could go anywhere. You could do things, right? It was just like expected that kids went out and played and did things. And, you know, I had to come back home by a certain point. But, but, uh, but the, really, the primary rule was just come home, straight home after school. I didn't understand the rule when I was younger. Now I understand, essentially, I was like a tornado in the morning getting ready for school. And so my parents wanted me to come home and undo the tornado damage before I went and launched anywhere. And you gotta remember, this is before cell phones, uh, before caller ID, before pagers, if you weren't a drug dealer, come on. You didn't have any of that stuff. So it was nice to actually leave a note. Hey guys, I'm at so-and-so's house and here's their number, right? So I had one major role. Rule. As long as I didn't break that rule, I had a ton of freedom. I knew the rule. However, about eighth grade, something happened. I met girls. And I had this amazing opportunity, come on, fellas, where a girl said, hey, you should come by my house after school and hang out. Now, listen, I got one primary rule. One. I knew the rule. Guess what I didn't do? honor the rule, right? As a result, I went over to this gal's house, nothing that exciting happened, and uh, hung out. But you know what was exciting? When I finally got home. <laughs> when I finally got home, my world got really exciting. Why? Because I knew, without a doubt, my one rule, but I didn't do it. A lot of times in our journey through our walk with Jesus, we know, come on now, we know the question is, do we do it? So fast forward, I'm 15 and I turn 16. And as every 16-year-old dreams, I got a car. It was uh, donated to me by a family member. It was a 1986 Chevy Sprint. It was a three-cylinder with about 322,000 miles on it. I was rolling. Now, it also had something called a manual transmission. Now, when you're 16, you just see car, freedom, movement. I can go somewhere. So I had turned 16. I had gotten my license. I had gotten this car. The tires were as bald as a baby. I mean, there was just nothing safe or wise about this car, but it was free and it was insured, all right? And I was ready to drive it, but I had no clue how to do it. So I get home from school, rule number one, straight home, right? The car's there just sitting on the extra driveway and nobody's home. And I'm like, I'm gonna learn how to drive this car, <laughs> right? Nobody's home, but I'm gonna learn how to drive this car. So I call my buddy because I know he can drive a stick. He lives about mm, two miles away, his name's Kevin. And I'm like, Kevin, can you come over and we'll learn how to drive this car? And he's like, well, I can't get over there, but why don't you drive it over here and pick me up? <laughs> and then I'll teach you how to drive it. Now, have we talked about how, you know, before age 17, especially in the human male, your brain just hasn't developed at all? Like there's no, no ability to connect consequences to decisions at all, right? So I was like, that's a great idea. I have keys, there's a car, I'll just go over here. The problem is I don't know how to drive the car. So I'll fast forward. <laughs> that car made it about three weeks before we burned the transmission out of that car, right? It was the shortest lasting free car ever. The adventure that happened that day, I will never fully talk about my mom is in the room today. <laughs> Let's just say 
Let's just say adventures happened because I was armed with a willingness to do something, come on, but not the information. A willingness to do something, but not the information. And here is the dilemma that we're walking into today with life's applications. James says it this way to us. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There is a tension in the life of every believer between do I understand what I'm supposed to do and am I willing to actually do that behavior? And for some of us, the tension is, yeah, I know but it's really hard to do it. And for some of us, the tension is, yeah, I'm willing to jump in, but oh, I haven't read a book since college or high school or the catcher in the rye or whatever. You know, it's like, I'm done with that, with that. So you just tell me, Pastor Mike, what to do and I'll go and I'll do it. I'm your guy, I'll run. And James says, there is a tension. It's like two sides, two oars that are helping you make your boat go, right? If you're just paddling on one side, you're going to spin in circles. If you're all knowledge and you won't do it, you're not going to get anywhere. And if you're all, I'll do it, but you don't know what you're supposed to do. Come on now. The tension is real. So that's the series that we're walking into, this idea of you can know what to do, (laughs) but just not do it. I'm excited about the series, Life Apps. Um, it's pulled from, a, from another place. And, and some of you ask, like, where do we get our, our series from? How do you do it? Pastor Mike, are you a preach through, you know, book by book of the Bible, line by line? And I say, yes. Are you a series guy and you enjoy series? And I say, yes. Are you a topic guy? And you just, yes, we do all of those things. And so, so this series, it's funny because I, I met um, the pastor who originally kind of unpacked this. And I'm doing this just full disclosure. And I asked him, I said, man, sometimes there's great series and I just love them and I want to do them. And you're, you know, resources in and, and how do I quote you and, and give you credit when the idea kind of comes from there? And this is way back in March of last year. And he goes, don't ever quote me. Take everything you can and make it better. So this is what we're doing <laughs> this week in this series because I just feel this is where we're at and this is for us. And so I'm really excited about this series, uh, Life Apps, and we're diving in. And, uh, and I was thinking about this incredible truth that, that there are specific applications that are given to us in the Bible. Now, I'm going to be tense here for just a second so we can deal with this. The applications that are in the Bible are given to people who have a relationship with the God of the Bible. And sometimes one of the tensions that we run into, come on now, as as believers, is we read a truth, an application that God gives us in the Bible, something like, uh, because you've been forgiven, you should forgive. And we go, yeah. And then we get into a relation with some, relationship with someone who doesn't have the same set of beliefs as us, and then they don't do the behavior we expect, and we get mad at them, even though they don't have the same relationship that we have. Because we think, well, this is the best way that you could live, so you should have to do it the way that I do it. And part of this, I just want us to be honest, this is for us. If you're in the room and you're in the house today and, and you're thinking, wow, man, I came to a service and it's going to be talking about rules. Bummer. Be free. <laughs> right? Some of these things that we're going to talk about are so helpful. I hope that you steal them and use them, whether you ever believe in the Bible or not, because they're just good and they're true and they're helpful. But come on, church folks. For those of us who say, yeah, I'm in. I'm on Team Jesus. You got the shirt or whatever. This is for us. We are without excuse. These are what, these are things that come out of the word of God that are for us that we have 
to do. Let me just make that make more sense for you. I don't yell at my neighbor's kids and enforce my rules and boundaries on them. That would be absurd. I don't go over to my neighbor's house at nine o'clock. Hey, are your kids in bed? Right? Are they in bed? Because I saw them running around the neighborhood and I was like, it's a school night. You better get in bed by nine o'clock. Do you know what would happen? Yeah. Can you imagine if someone came and did that to you? They were like, hey, I told you guys no more watching the 10 o'clock law and order. You got to get up in the morning. And they came over and tried to influence your household your, with their rules. But that's the same thing that we do all the time when we interact with people who haven't received the relationship yet to this word. It's like we go into their world and says, well, how come you don't do it my way? And they're looking at me like, who are you to do that? And so that's kind of where we're, where we're walking through is this is, a, this is a truth that's for us. We get to do this, this way. I was even thinking about the 10 commandments. Think about the 10 commandments. If you think about the story of God giving the 10 commandments, the basic first set of do's and do nots, he did not send Moses into Egypt and say, all right, guys, listen up. These are the 10 things you gotta do and then God's gonna get you out of here. He didn't do that. He didn't say, he didn't say all right, Jewish culture, first things first, pick one. Honor your mother and father and then we're getting out of here. He didn't do that. Instead, he initiated a relationship. He demonstrated power and authority, brought them out of slavery into the wilderness. They leaned into a place of dependency on him. He provided food. He provided water. He provided relationship and context for that relationship. He gave them identity. He said, you have a promised land that we're gonna take you into. And now here are some things that will help you be the kind of people that can represent this relationship well. Do you see that process? Do you see how important that is? Application always comes after relationship. Always comes after relationship. <laughs> my rules may be great. I may love my rules that I have for my kids, but I don't get to enforce them on anybody else. You know, there were two people in scripture that really, really harped on this idea that applying the word of God was critical, that how we lived it out was critical. And those two guys were brothers. They were brothers. One was James and one was Jesus. And so we're gonna walk through what they said. I always, I always get stuck on James because to me, James is probably my favorite idea in history of someone who follows Jesus. And here's why. James is the literal brother of Jesus. Not like, hey, we're all brothers and sisters, right? He grew up with the same mom and a stepdad compared to what Jesus had for a dad. But he grew up in the same house as Jesus. They were brothers. They probably played together. They probably learned the carpentry trade together. And I just, I don't know how to tell you this. Does anyone have a brother or a sister in here? Is there any? Okay. What would it take for your brother to convince you that they were God? I just want you to think about that for a minute because this is James's story. He is convinced. In fact, he's so convinced, not only does he write part of the scriptures, but history tells us he's literally thrown off a roof and killed because he will not recant. He will not change his story. He goes 
all the way in and says, no, 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 my brother was the son of God, was God. Now, I don't know about you. I have a brother. He could fly here, sprout wings, and land in my front yard, and I would say, what witchcraft is this? <laughs> right? I love him, but there is no frame of reference I can imagine for him to convince me that he's God. But for James to end up convinced is, to me, the, the, just the most telling piece of the story of Jesus that there is. I, I love it. It makes me laugh every time I think about it. I'm like, can you imagine? Can you imagine every argument the entire entire time of your adolescence when you go, mom, Jesus. No, he didn't. <sighs> mom, Jesus took my, no, he didn't. <sighs> mom, does Jesus, no. And you're just like, you're wrong every time. That is brutal. I can't even imagine that. Oh, poor James. James, I feel you, brother. That must've been rough. So here's James. And James is like, listen, and we know that James wasn't an early adapter either. Early on in Jesus's ministry and when he returns home and, and preaches, James is in the crowd of his family who are like, my brother's crazy. He isn't an early adapter. Something happens in Jesus's story. And we know what it is. We know it's the cross, the death and the resurrection. He sees Jesus on the other side of death and something changes in him. Because early on, he's like, dude, you're embarrassing the family dude, knock it off. Dude, don't you know everybody is now angry at you? because, Like, that's James's role. He's kind of taking care of moms, and he's like, oh, big brother's a pain. But something changes in him, and it's incredible. So James is the one who lands on this huge reality that only he and Jesus really press into this truth in Scripture, that it's not just what you know. Come on now. It's what you do with what you know. So James... Let's back up a little bit. Chapter one, I'm again in verse 19, and you can follow on the screen or you can get over there. If you're following with me, I'm in James one, and eventually I'll be in Matthew seven, and some of you like to get ahead of me, and that's okay. James chapter one, verse 19. James is writing to a group of Christians, of believers, of church folks that, that he has relationship with, and he's coaching them on what it's gonna look like to walk through this life now that they've made the decision to believe what they believe. They've stepped out in faith. And I'm in James chapter one, beginning in verse 19. And he says, my dear brothers, now this isn't my biological brothers now. This is the church. Come on, this is us. He's writing to a crowd right now, but he's writing through time to us. He's like, my dear brothers, take note of this. So if you're a note taker, Come on now. Jesus is literally like, or James, write this one down. This one's important. This is something you should recall. This is something you should remember. This will be helpful to you. He says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone, look at someone and say, that's you. All right, everyone, that's me, that's you. All right, that's you, everyone. That's not specific people, that's everyone in this group of brothers, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Let's stop right there for a second. <sighs> Let's just take a moment and let that soak in. Everyone, that's you, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Some of you are not taking note yet. I'm talking to you. 
Everyone, insert your name, Mike, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can you imagine, let's get, let's shrink this crowd up. Can you imagine if just people who were followers of Jesus, who were church folks, paid attention to this thing that James said, take note of? If just people who were followers, let's just start, let's start small. Can you imagine if you're in your house? <laughs> let's go way smaller. Just the people that you see every day at your job. If we just started with this simple truth that James unpackages for us as he's walking us to this, how we live it out, should be quick to listen. What does it mean to be quick to listen? James is like, hey, your first reaction when data and information is coming your way is to open your ears. What's the old saying? You have two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you talk, right? Was that the old saying? But, but he's like, your first state should be, let that information get in your brain before you start thinking about how you're going to respond to it. Let it get in there. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Oh, are you kidding me? We live in a world that is so quick to speak. And whoever speaks first and loudest wins. And if I can shout you down, it doesn't matter if I've heard anything you've said. I just want to speak first and I want to speak loudest. Turn on any channel. Watch any news program. Watch any talk show. Watch anything where actual live humans are interacting with one another. And watch us not do this. <laughs> and slow to become angry. Uh-oh. Can you imagine? Because we do the exact opposite. If I were describing just our culture and our time and our world right now, I would say everyone is slow to listen, quick to speak, and in a hurry to get angry. And you would go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. That's exactly what I see. And James is like, guys, as we apply the thing that Jesus taught us, we have got to start. Some of you got angry already when I just started talking about who has to follow what rules, right? And you're already just like, what? What? You're already like, I got to, you're right, typing me an email, whatever, go for it, right? You're just already figuring it out. Hopefully you've got your phone in like airplane mode so it doesn't come out. Um, because <laughs> we did that already. But everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And we do the exact opposite. Imagine learning this lesson with Jesus. Imagine, imagine James thinking back through his childhood, going, dang it, if I would have just listened. But I didn't listen. If I just wouldn't have piped up all the times I piped up, I'm written down. Matthew got that written down that time I opened my mouth and I was, you know, that's gonna be forever. We're gonna be remembering that forever, that time I told Jesus, hey, you're crazy, right? That's, <laughs> that's in there now. Think about yourself. If you were to evaluate yourself on this scale, would you say I'm quicker to listen or I'm slower to listen? I'm quicker to speak or I'm slower to speak? I'm quicker to become angry or I'm slower to become angry? How many of the biggest tensions that you're walking through or have walked through have been because I moved too quickly and I wasn't willing to listen and I was too sure I was right and I was too sure you weren't hearing me and now I'm angry and you're angry and we're done. James is like, hey, it just starts right there, guys. 
Some of you are like, well, you're saying I can't get angry? I'm not saying you can't get angry. God gets angry. All right, I made in the image of God, he gets angry. I can get angry. James is like, okay, I know that argument's coming. So let me just make note. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Hold on just a second there. James is absolutely crushing this simple principle. Yeah, it's okay to get angry, but you can't live there because there is no other side of angry that produces the righteous life that God desires. You have to walk through anger and come out on the other side. If you live there, it will produce fruit in your life that is not righteous, is not what God desires for you. Come on, you know this is true. You know someone in your life whose natural position is angry. Every time you interact with them, it's like they're angry. Hey, how's it going? Oh, this guy just cut me off in traffic. Whoa, how's it going? You're like, hey, it's good to see you again. I haven't seen you for a little while. Yeah, have you been watching the news and you're watching this politicians and you're watching this thing and you're ah! just like anger is bubbling out of them. Hey, how's the kids? Oh, if I could just get this kid to listen. Right? And just, it's coming out of them. And you tell me if that produces the righteous life that God desires. It doesn't. You can't hold on to that. Eventually, we're going to, as we get through some of the apps, talk about dealing with some of that stuff. But James is clear. He's like, you can't live in that position and end where God's best for you is. You can't stay there. Can you get angry? You bet. The scripture says, get angry and sin not. It even talks about how to deal with anger, but we cannot stay there. Some of you are like, but my anger's justified. Great. Has that justified anger brought you closer to a righteous life or kept you further away? But my anger is right. Good. Be angry. Give it to the Lord and deal with it and move on. Man, James got the, got the whip out right, huh? He's got the, went to the whip hand early today. Woo, he's feeling it. Verse 21, he says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word that was planted in you, which can save you. He says the key to getting through that process is humility. What's humility? Humility is saying, I'm not the end all, be all. I'm human. I needed God's help to make it. They're human. They need God's help to make it. I can actually have a little perspective here. That's what humility does for us. It's the anti-anger state of mind. It acknowledges I'm not perfect. There is a possibility that I could have blown it somewhere in here, that I may have, whether I said the right things, my tone may have been wrong. And so I don't approach other people expecting them to manage to be perfect. That's what humility does. It says, hey, I don't expect you to be perfect. We're gonna interact and you're imperfect and my imperfect are gonna collide and we're gonna have to figure that out and I'm just gonna believe that you're gonna have mercy on my imperfect and I'm gonna have mercy on your imperfect and together we're gonna get through this and I'm not going to, come on now, default to being quick, to getting angry. And in this context, James drops this bomb in here, verse 22, and he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says. He's saying, hey, 
there's relational context, there's life context, but in the midst of this, the thing you can't do is only listen. Now, I love this. Because James had the same problem in the church 2,000 years ago that we see in the world today. Folks are happy to listen to the truth and then not go live it. And here's the thing that happens. It happens to church folks. It happens to us all the time. We feel somehow good about the fact that we managed to get here and hear the truth. And so that was our part of the deal. And we're like, "Woo, we did it. We made it. So then we leave here and nothing changes in our lives. We have the same exact experience week to week. But as long as we get back and hear the word again, we feel like, whew, at least we're not like those other folks that don't even listen at all. Ouch. It was 2,000 years ago, the same problem. That's not a unique problem. James had the same problem with the early church saying, you are thinking that the credit goes for just hearing the word. And no actual change and engagement with the word. No life change is happening. You're just hearing the word. But nothing else has changed. Listen, <laughs> I, I, this is harsh, but it's just true. I'll, I'll go all the way down to youth group again because it's easier um, for you to pull it out than for me to say that this is us. So I can remember talking to leadership youth group kids, right? We have a big night, you know, things are happening, God's moving and we're dealing with stuff and it's awesome and I'm talking to kids afterwards and they're just like, man, I just felt so bad. When, when, when all that truth came out, I was like, I felt really bad. That was awesome. And then they leave and they keep doing all the same things they were doing before, but because they went to church and then they felt bad about it, they were just like, that's awesome. That was the experience they were looking for. And we've turned that into like a, a faith experience, just feeling bad about something. And James is like, whoa, that's not the goal. Jesus never came in to just like doom and gloom you. It was about hope. And that feeling bad piece, when, when the Holy Spirit stirs that in you, it's to affect change. It's to lead to new behaviors so you can leave that old stuff behind that you were feeling bad about and go from this place. But I had so many conversations. Oh, it was a great night. I felt like God was really moving because I felt so bad. I'm tired of you feeling bad. Right? Stop feeling bad and go do new things. Come on now, we translate that into our world. It's like, man, I heard that word and it was just, Oh, it got in there. It was good. That preacher, man, he did it. Yeah, he just nailed me. And then you go back and you're like, all right, let's get through another week. Here we go. And I really hope he nails me again next week. It's like, we're like, yeah, give it to me. And there's all this pressure on me to just, oh, just nail you every week. And there's no change. James is like, that's absurd. To think that's the goal, you've just totally missed the point of the word of God. It wasn't to elicit some feeling of guilt in you to make you, make you feel somehow like that was the point. Verse 23, he gives a great illustration. He goes, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, you got to remember, they didn't have good mirrors back then like we have now. Some of us have mirrors, like, come on, ladies, you have special mirrors that have, like, magical lights in them 
so that you can just like put a laser focus on one pore and just explore all the space of that pore. And you like have named those pores and you spent time with them. And like, you have a special relationship with that part. Like, come on now, we got mirrors that allow that kind of introspection to happen in our lives right now, okay? He didn't have access to those kind of mirrors. They had like reflections and water and copper that had kind of been banged out. And so, so, so there's like a whole industry that is designed to help us face the mirror every day, okay? And you know that because just think about your bathroom counter right now, how many things you've purchased. You have little bags that you won't leave the house for more than a day without, without all of the supplies in there that you need so that you can face the mirror every morning. And, 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 and things haven't changed. They looked in the mirror 2,000 years ago. They just didn't have the quality of mirror. So it was a pretty big deal before they left the house to go, okay, wow, my beard's growing in good. Yeah, you know, manly, flex a little bit. And then they go. And James is like, that moment of introspection, when you looked at your life and when you looked at the, even just the exterior things of your life, and that's what's carrying you, because there's not mirrors everywhere you go at this time. That's what's carrying you through the whole day. That's an important moment to take a look in the mirror. So for you to look in the mirror and then walk away and be like, hey, and someone's like, hey, nice beard. You're like, I have a beard? He's like, that's absurd. You looked in the mirror. Why didn't you take that moment when you looked at the beard and the mirror and actually process what was going on there? And James says, man, this is the mirror for your life, for your heart, for your soul, the word of God. And for you to look at the mirror and go, oh, that hurts. Yeah, hurts so good. And then walk away like, oh, that was nothing. He's like, that's absurd. That's foolish. It doesn't make sense. Get it in your heart and in your mind that that's not how we do this thing. The perfect word is supposed to actually change us yet we immediately forget what it looks like. But here's the thing. We're good at denying reality. When we want something, when something's comfortable, when something makes our life feel easier in the moment, we're happy to deny reality. Think of all the dumbest things you've done. I would wager, I know when I think of the dumb things I've done, there was always a moment where I was like, oh, this is not a good, good idea right? But I was able to deny that reality and go do the dumb thing. I had a friend in high school. Um, he's a little bit older than me by the name of Mark. And uh, they were cliff jumping off a place where they shouldn't have been cliff jumping. And he jumped and he broke his back. And he had a, a horrible, difficult recovery. And, and I remember um, our youth pastor praying with him and we were talking to him. And I remember him just saying uh, uh, that, that he knew that it was dumb. But, you know, come on, everyone was doing it. I wanted to be cool. How many of those big epic moments we knew, but we talked ourselves, what's the worst that can happen? How many times have we had those moments where it's like, well, no one's gonna find out. And we talked ourselves into it. I'd want this thing right now. No one's gonna find out. What's the consequence? What are the chances my taxes are getting audited anyways? Ooh, that was a lot of diverted eye contact in here. <laughs> Let's just stay there for a moment. Woo! Now I got locked on eye contact. That's amazing. The view from up here is awesome. <laughs> no one will find out. No one will know. 
there's a time when the thing just isn't wise and we're like, well, what's the worst that can happen? I remember, <laughs> I remember just wandering in the woods with a group of guys, just being dumb guys and getting lost and having no awareness. Like, this is probably not a good decision. We have just shorts on and T-shirts, and it's going to be cold out here we're in the mountains. But, you know, ah, be, what's the worst that can happen? We're together. Yeah, the worst that can happen is pretty bad, even if you're together. <laughs> right? And James is like, when you have a picture of the potential of what can happen and you just walk away and time and time again go back into that. You're just like a guy that looks in the mirror and it's absurd that you walked away and forgot. It is absurd. I can go on and on. James is saying you gotta listen to this advice and not just walk away. Here's the thing, we've all been there where we saw someone who was a professed follower of Jesus and then we saw what came out of them and we were like, oh no, that's embarrassing. Oh no, where, where was the moment they walked past the line and just said, ah, it's okay. That kind of thinking is the kind of thing that we turn on the TV and you're like, how did you find this one person to interview? Like you must've walked through the crowd and said, please tell me you're a Christian, please tell me you're a Christian, you're a Christian, good. Let me test you for a second. Oh good, you're gonna say something absolutely insane. Let's put you on TV, <laughs> right? And then you watch and you're just like, oh, why? 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 Because they've heard this, but they're not willing to do what it says. So they're armed with information, but their behavior is out of control. They're armed with information like, I should love my neighbor, but their behavior doesn't reflect that. They're armed with information that says, don't judge someone who's outside of the church. But they're like, ah, I'm pretty good at judging. Like, that's one of my good gifts. So, <laughs> so I know it's in there, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go ahead and jut, right? And then they get on the news and we're just like, oh. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 25. He says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it. How many times does he have to say, you have to actually do it? He will be blessed in what he does. Now, this is interesting because I didn't grow up thinking that laws gave freedom. That's a little counterintuitive. My default instinct is more rules means less freedom. But James is like, ah, God's perfect law actually gives you freedom. Do I believe that? I don't know. Let's explore some of it. How about what God says about giving and tithing and his model of your first fruits, trusting him with those things so that he can unleash provision and blessing in your life. I didn't believe that for a long time. I was like, whoo, that's like a bait and switch move in there, Bible guys. But you know what wasn't freeing? Burying myself in debt having no restraint and just buying whatever I wanted when I wanted it. That didn't lead to freedom. So I was like, all right, well, this didn't lead to freedom. Let's try it another way. And I watched the perfect law of God bring freedom into my life. How about my body's a temple? So I should care what goes in and out of it. That didn't feel like freedom. Come on, it's legal here to put extracurriculars into your body. Right? 
Yet how many folks do we know battling a situation that is less than free? Why had all the freedom in the world? God's like, yeah, but your body's a temple. You should care what goes in and out of it. It didn't feel like freedom. It didn't feel like freedom when I was 15 and 16, when I was 17. Come on, once I could drive. That didn't feel like freedom at the time, but you know how free it is to have never had that stuff in your system. You see, his perfect law brings freedom. Don't believe me yet? Let's talk about marriage. How uncomfortable can we get? All right, you're 15 years old. No one's home after school. You got one rule, a chance to break it. But you know what? There's no freedom there. You think back. You know, some of you are the person. You know the person who had the most wild high school and college life, and you look into the future and their marriage and where they're at right now, and you ask them if they feel like they have more freedom because they went and explored all of that space, and they ran away from God's plan for marriage to keep themselves only to their spouse. Thank God for the freedom that comes on this side, on this side of his law. How about conflict resolution? How about forgiveness? Forgiveness doesn't feel like freedom. God, I have to forgive people? That's not free. I'm not free when that happens. Forgiveness is a burn. Let's just face it, right? Marshall, you wronged me, so I got burned once. God's like, you gotta forgive him. I'm like, ah, burn twice. Then I gotta go and actually forgive you. It's like a, th- it's like it's a triple threat. Forgiveness is the worst. Except for it's way better than bitterness. You met some bitter people in your life, holding on to a hurt through their entire life. Bitterness like a poison just drifting through their soul. Conflict resolution, Matthew chapter 18, come on. The Bible gives a pattern for how do you deal with it. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens, you've won him over. But if he doesn't listen, take along one or two so that in every matter it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen then, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's a process of conflict resolution. That's biblical. That doesn't feel like freedom. You know what feels like freedom? You wronged me. You're out. All right? I'll make new friends. I'll make new friends. Yet here's the scripture saying you can have a process of walking through tension that can lead to healing and wholeness and life. There's a freedom, he says. There's liberty. It's only found on the other side of obeying the laws. It's only found on the other side. In the application, there's freedom. The thing is, application makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. You can know all that information, but if you don't do it, it doesn't help you at all. I told you there's two brothers who brought this up. Jesus is the other one. So Jesus in Matthew chapter seven, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells a really powerful story. Now, what's the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount, the best way to kind of take that all in is it's kind of like Jesus's campaign speech. His, his this is what's gonna be different about the world now. We're gonna change things now. 
And he wraps it up by telling an incredible, powerful, incredibly powerful story. Um, let's jump to verse 24. Let's jump to verse 24. He tells an incredibly powerful story about two builders, about two builders. And he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into what? Practice. Some version says, and does them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and actually does them. Jesus makes a distinction here. Sometimes we argue like, well, you know, that, that's all. You're just saying I have to earn it. He's like, no, no, no. You have to live it. If you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, he goes, hey, there's two builders. Now, I don't know about you. Have, have, have any of you, I know it's Washington. You guys go to the beach, like the real beach, right? Where you can actually play in the water. Not where you just look at the water and you're just like, oh, let's take pictures of it, right? You get into the water and it's nice and you're worried about things like sharks and stuff, but it's, you're still doing, right? Okay, so you've been to the real beach, right? Not if you have, okay, cool. All right, so, so there's a thing. It's awesome to be down on the beach. If you go down to, you know, maybe where it's really, really nice houses are um, uh, close to the beach, they're never right there on the sand right next to the water. And there's a reason, and it's obvious. Even the most expensive houses do not try to build right there on the sand. Why? Because that foundation moves and shifts and it ultimately is inconsistent and destructive. But if you turn, the really nice houses will be just a little ways off the beach as soon as you hit the rock, as soon as you hit the rock where they can put a foundation. And this has been true all throughout time. Builders have been able to put this together. Where's my builders at? Don't build it right here on the sand. I actually lived in a house. I've shared it before. When I was in Oregon, we lived in a house that was built in 1853, right? So if you played Oregon Trail, right, and you, you know, shot a buffalo and you forded the river and you didn't die of dysentery and you landed in Oregon, you would have built a house like this house, only I lived in it in real life. It was built in 1853, okay? And that house was still standing. And you know what his foundation was? Just rock. And it had been through storms. It had been through all kinds of weather, but it's foundation. Now you could walk uphill into the kitchen, right? <laughs> and you could like glide down into the living room. That thing was, it was an adventure in that house. Okay. It was an adventure. There's no joke, but it was still standing. It had been beaten by storms and weather and stood the test of time because it was built on the rock. And Jesus says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, here it is, and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Let's stop right there. The same storms came to every house. The same pressure, the same conflict, the same scenarios. There was no 
provision allotted to the wise builder that he wasn't going to experience the storm. What was provided is the anchor and foundation of his house because it was birthed out of actually doing what Jesus said, that it would stand. That's amazing. That promise that he gave right there is still true today. You know, I heard this crazy example and it just made a ton of sense to me and, and, and we're close to wrapping it up. I'll bring the band up here and, and we'll, we'll get done. But it was an example and it, it just resonated with me. It was, you know, imagine a dad. He's got a few teenagers and it's garbage day. Come on now, the whole point of having teenagers is garbage day, <laughs> right? Like if I'm, if I'm still doing garbage day when my kids hit their teens, like I've failed, right? And he leaves a note as he heads off to work because the house kind of stinks a little bit right now. Garbage is piled up and not everything has gone out. And he leaves a note on the counter and he says, hey, this is your father. What I need from you today before you leave the house because it's garbage day is to go and gather all of the garbage Put it in the bins, take it out to the curb so the garbage man can take the garbage out of the house. He goes to work. And when he comes home, as he pulls up, he sees an ominous sight. There's no garbage cans out in front of the house. He sees the neighbor's garbage cans. They're out there and they're empty. And there's a moment of hope where he's like, well, maybe they brought him in. <laughs> Why are you laughing, parents of teenagers? <laughs> And he walks into the house and there's that familiar aroma of too much garbage that's been piled in on the house. And he looks and there at the kitchen table are his teenagers. And the kitchen table is piled with books and paper and they're writing furiously. And he goes, hey, what's going on? And they say, dad, it was so amazing, your request that we take out the garbage that we didn't go to school today, we stayed home and we began to study how the garbage system started in America. <laughs> and we found out who the originator of, of creating that was. And did you know that there was a garbage system in the Bible? And we figured out that the garbage dump, Gehenna, that stood outside of, of, uh, of Jerusalem was actually a metaphor for hell. And we've been studying and we've learned, I know how to say garbage in the Greek now. And I've become an expert on garbage. Thank you so much for your letter. Your letter was written so well. All of the prose was in the right tense and it was beautiful. My life is changed because of the letter. I've spent so much time studying. And dad's like, why didn't you take out the garbage? And we do that with this, with dad's letter. We dive in and we study and we mine for truth and we pull out all of this great things. And some point God's just like, hey, what if you actually did some of that? Can you imagine the difference in the world? Can you imagine the change in your neighborhood? If we actually started doing some of this, can you imagine the change in your family if we actually started doing some of this? You see, application's everything. And we can get lost in this space where we dive in deep and never actually, come on, put feet on our faith. And we could miss it. And so would you stand with me? We're gonna close, but I just wanna, I wanna challenge you. 
for the next like five weeks, I mean, we're going to go into it. We're going to talk about specific applications, right? We're going to talk about forgiveness. Come on, some of you don't even want to mess with that. There's an app for that. We're going to talk about trust. There's an app for that. We're going to talk about, come on, confession, dealing with stuff. There's an app for that. It's in here. There's an application we can use to get through that. The tool is there. And so I'm not sure where you're at. But today, my challenge, my invitation for you is going from this place committed, not to just be a hearer, but to actually do it. Because what profit would it be to spend time reflecting in the mirror and then walk away and have no change in our lives? The point of this whole thing isn't for you to come into this place and for me to somehow, come on, press whatever button it is that triggers the emotion in you. I don't want, I mean, that's great. What I, what I would love to see is the Holy Spirit trigger the reaction in you and the movement in your life and the transformation in your life and the change in your life. Because if that would get into you, come on now, it could change your family. It can change your home. It could change your neighborhood. We could change this community if we would just do it. So God, this morning, I'm challenged in my own heart, in my own life to live it, not to just learn it. I wanna be a lifelong learner, but what profit is it if I learn it and I don't ever live it and I don't ever get out and if it doesn't ever get out of my just heart and into my actions. God, uh, James said it. He's like, he's like, don't deceive yourself. That perfect law gives freedom. It doesn't restrict freedom. Jesus, your word's so clear. I don't want to be a foolish builder. I don't want to build my whole life on hearing the word and not actually applying it and doing it in any way. God, that would just be a wasted life. I know the storms are coming. I want to be, God, rested and rooted on the foundation of your love and your will for my life. So in this moment, I pray for all of us here. I pray that we'd be stirred this morning, not just stirred like, ooh, that felt good, and then we missed it. Come on. That's not the point. We'd be stirred into, God, how do I live it? How do I learn it? How do I, how do I apply both pieces where I not only learn it, but I actually live it? And what does that look like today? God, I pray in the next several weeks as we walk through this, you challenge us. I pray our hearts would be soft. I pray our minds wouldn't be hard. Our minds would be soft. We'd be open to the conversation. And I pray that the transformation that comes out of this would be life-giving in our own lives, in our own families, but even in this body, I pray. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.